Welcome to Play Politics. I'm Noah Niederhofer. Jenny Tayer is off again this week, but we'll be back, rest assured. Wow, so much to get into here. We have the recap of Super Tuesday. Uh, definitely going to give you guys an update on COVID-19, the coronavirus, and of course, we do have our uplifting story of the week. But let's go ahead and get into it. Let's start right now with a recap of Super Tuesday. So, the state of play, as we saw on that Sunday when Jenny and I recorded the podcast, was that it appeared that Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders were going to be the two people and kind of create this whole thing into a two-man race. That's, that's really what they were looking to do. At the time, we had many more candidates who were still in the race. We had Pete Buttigieg, we had Amy Klobuchar, we had Elizabeth Warren, we had Mike Bloomberg, and of course, as I mentioned before, we have Bernie Sanders and we have Joe Biden. Then something incredible happened. So we saw Pete Buttigieg drop out, Amy Klobuchar drop out, then they went to a Biden rally to endorse him altogether. So we saw this consolidation of the moderates with Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar. We had Bloomberg stay in the race. Elizabeth Warren also stayed in the race. And of course, we had Sanders and Biden. Biden won big time in a lot of different states on Super Tuesday. Really, really huge for him. He had a narrow win in Texas, which was the second biggest prize of the night. Bernie Sanders did have a big win in California. But but here's how the night went for Joe Biden. He picked up wins in Alabama, Arkansas, Maine, Massachusetts, Minnesota, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, and Virginia. Really impressive if you look at that. So again, with his win in South Carolina, you can see he's dominated in the South. So again, South Carolina, Alabama, he also has those wins in North Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia. So he's won a lot of those southern states. And then you see he can also go ahead and win in the Northeast with those wins in Maine and Massachusetts. Those wins in Oklahoma and Texas are certainly big as well and show he has a broad appeal. And if you look at the states that Bernie Sanders won, obviously the huge delegate count in California. He also won Colorado, Utah, and his home state of Vermont. So you see he's doing quite well out in the West. The West Coast, obviously known as a, as a much more liberal part of the country. What do we learn from this? And then I should mention, after Super Tuesday happens, Mike Bloomberg, who only came away with a win in American Samoa, decided he would drop out of the race and endorse Joe Biden. That is a huge win, obviously, for Joe Biden, and now he has Mike Bloomberg's backing as far as finance. So Mike Bloomberg now sets up a kind of a super PAC, uh, a group that is now going to spend money in battleground states in order to try to defeat President Trump in the general election. Now, one of the interesting things is you look at, well, so what happened with Bloomberg? I mean, he, he did all this stuff and he failed. It's true. And I think he probably didn't anticipate Klobuchar and Mayor Pete dropping out and endorsing Joe Biden. Bloomberg was, was going to be okay had those other ones stayed in because those would have siphoned off votes from other people. But at the end of the day, the only place that he won was American Samoa. Pretty embarrassing stuff for Mike Bloomberg, who spent about $500 million. Of course, that's pocket change to Mike Bloomberg, who is a billionaire many, 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 many times over. But at the same time, 
this seemed to be a little bit of, I can do it. My strategy is going to work. And we saw that it 100% did not at all. So what happens now after Bloomberg? Then we had Elizabeth Warren drop out. She has not endorsed a candidate yet, but it looks like her policies align more with Bernie Sanders than they do with Joe Biden. She tried to position herself so she could bridge the gap between the moderates and the left flank of the party where she has definitely become known. The thing was, she didn't really have a lane in the campaign. Bernie Sanders was the original copy. He was the real progressive in the race, and I think people definitely gravitated towards that. I know a lot of people disappointed in Warren's performance, but the reality is she did not make her case to voters. She did not finish in the top three in any of the states that she competed in, and ultimately, you need top three finishes. You need to do well, and she didn't. She didn't do that in Iowa. She didn't do it in New Hampshire. She didn't do it in South Carolina, and she didn't do it on Super Tuesday, even losing her home state of Massachusetts, and that just can't happen, and so she did not see realistically a path forward. Just today, we also had some big news. Senator Kamala Harris of California has endorsed Joe Biden, saying that I believe in Joe and I'm going to do everything I can to help him become the next president of the United States. So that's a big endorsement, obviously, there from one of California's senators. But I think Harris maybe was waiting until after Super Tuesday to make her move and now say, okay, Joe Biden has all the momentum right now. He's got more delegates than Bernie Sanders coming out of Super Tuesday. It's a slight lead to be sure, but it is difficult to try to make up that gap because there are going to be states that Joe Biden is just going to perform well in and win. He's not going to lay over. It's not like Bernie Sanders has a map that he is just going to walk over Joe Biden. And it's going to be really, really interesting to see. Our next set of nominating contests, we have March 10th, Idaho, Michigan, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, and Washington. I think it's pretty safe to say. I think we can put Washington over there in Bernie Sanders' camp. Mississippi, I think, will definitely go to Joe Biden. So Michigan, the big prize of the night. It's going to be very, very interesting to see if Joe Biden is able to win in Michigan. So if Joe Biden wins in Michigan, that could be a preview of things to come in Illinois and Ohio. Going back to Super Tuesday— This is really an incredible transformation in the race right now. Bernie Sanders had all the momentum. It looked like he was going to exit the Super Tuesday states with a delegate lead that could not be passed. And right now, after those candidates dropped out, Joe Biden has this flood of endorsements. He gets Mayor Pete to endorse. He gets Klobuchar to endorse at the same place. They show unity. And then all of a sudden, he has this big night on Super Tuesday. Winning Texas was huge. Bernie Sanders had a narrow lead going in there, but Joe Biden walks out of Texas with the win and the delegate lead overall heading down towards the rest of the big states, the rest of the primary. Now it's a totally different ballgame, especially again as we see Bloomberg drops out. Tulsi Gabbard's still in for some reason. Tulsi, what are you doing? But we have Bloomberg drop out. And then we have, again, Kamala Harris endorsed. So Joe Biden is riding this huge wave of momentum right now. It's really, really positive for his campaign. Bernie Sanders 
if he can get a win in Michigan, that would definitely stop this metaphorical bleeding here. I think that would be a huge turnaround for his campaign and show that he is definitely still going to be competitive and that he has a chance to overtake Joe Biden for the delegate lead. But in my opinion, again, this is not going to be decided outright. I don't think Bernie Sanders is going to quit, even if Joe Biden wins in Michigan, even if Joe Biden wins in Florida and in Ohio and in Illinois and in Arizona going forward. We have all of these things. The front runner is going to continue to amass delegates, but I don't think Bernie Sanders is going to head home. I do not think so. He has put in too much time. He's put in too much money. He's doing too much work. And his voters, his supporters, are not going to let that go. They want him to be in it for the long haul. Now, whether that's for the best interests of the Democratic Party is another thing entirely. But in my opinion, I do not think we will see a candidate get to the necessary amount of delegates needed to clinch the nomination before the convention. I think what we're going to have is we're going to have Joe Biden versus Bernie Sanders at a brokered convention. And then I think Joe Biden will have the most delegates heading into that convention on the first ballot. We'll see if he doesn't get that amount, the 1,991 delegates needed to lock up the nomination for the Democratic Party. Then on the second ballot and every subsequent ballot, the superdelegates come in and they are able to vote. But there are still enough Obama loyalists and people that are holdovers from that administration that know Joe Biden, that worked with Joe Biden. I expect that once the superdelegates vote, they will tip the scale in his favor if he does not get the amount required on that first vote. But that is still very, very far away. Again, a reminder, the contests that we have coming up here, March 10th, we have Idaho, Michigan, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, and Washington. will be very, very interesting to see what happens there. All right, want to move ahead now to the COVID-19 update, coronavirus spreading across the country, across the world, continuing to do so. Back on March 8th, the uh, chief of the World Health Organization said that today, for the first time, this was a tweet that he sent out, today for the first time, 100 countries are reporting COVID-19 cases. This comes after the world reached 100,000 cases the day before. That would have been March 7th. While very serious, this should not discourage us. There are many things everyone everywhere can and should do now. That is obviously incredibly distressing news to hear from the chief of the World Health Organization. This past week, we had our first cases confirmed in Maryland, uh, which neighbors me here in D.C., and we also had our first D.C. uh, case confirmed uh, here in this past week. One of the confirmed cases in New Jersey was found to have attended CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, and there were also a couple of people who attended APAC, both of those events happening here in D.C. and uh, National Harbor in Maryland. But the D.C. case, the one that just happened here in D.C., where uh, we had a patient confirmed to have coronavirus, he did not get it from travel. He did not get it from international travel, which means, again, this is coming from community spread. This is coming from person-to-person transmission. So a lot of people are definitely concerned, a lot of people self-quarantining, trying to protect not only themselves, but also coworkers, friends, and loved ones. 
something very, very drastic that we are now seeing comes to us from Italy. Italy's government has placed more than 16 million people, this is about a quarter of their population, under lockdown in a drastic bid to prevent the spread of coronavirus. This is the Lombardy region in the north. The two cities that you're probably very familiar with in that region are Milan and Venice. Those are some of the economic engines of Italy. And again, placing about a quarter of the population there in Italy under lockdown and limiting mobility. This is somewhat similar, I guess, to what you would say in a case of gangrene or something like that, where you cut off your hand or your arm to try to save the rest of the body. That is what is happening right now in Italy. The prime minister says this is an emergency, a national emergency. And what they're doing is putting the entire economy as well as a quarter of the population at risk. So they are going for a drastic short-term fix to try to stop what they see as a huge problem later on. But this is going to devastate the Italian economy. Again, Milan and Venice are huge economic engines of the Italian economy. And again, a quarter of the population of Italy, more than 16 million people under lockdown. Something else that happened recently is there were a number of cases spreading aboard a cruise ship. The coronavirus-stricken cruise ship is going to dock in California on Monday. They're going to try to get people off of that ship. If you look at Russia, Moscow City authorities have threatened people with five-year prison sentences for people that fail to self-isolate in their homes for two weeks. So you're seeing threats from the Russian government to their own citizens. And then in Iran, almost 50 people have died from the coronavirus in less than 24 hours. And again, what you have to Anything coming from Iran, you have to take with a grain of salt, but that is Iran's Ministry of Health. A spokesman reported that on Sunday that, again, almost 50 people have died from coronavirus in less than 24 hours. Several senior officials in the country have contracted COVID-19. 743 new cases have popped up. Again, if you look at the U.S., Virginia confirmed its second case. So again, we have two in Virginia. We have Maryland. They are testing dozens more. And of course, as I mentioned before, we also had our first D.C. case. So the number of cases here in the United States is over 400 now. The death toll, which will increase even as I put out this podcast right now, it stands at 19. Obviously, we hope for the health and safety of everyone, uh, not just the people listening, obviously, but everyone here in the country, everyone all over the world. Uh, please, please, please make sure that you are taking care of yourself, washing your hands. Please make sure that you are taking care of your hygiene and avoiding contact with others when possible. I think it does bear mentioning right now in this moment that the White House has not done the best job that they could. This is 100% obviously not all their fault and not laying all of this at the foot of the president you can't this is a global disease this is something that has gone from place to place to place and cdc officials did say that an outbreak in the united states was inevitable that's just the nature of this global economy where you have people traveling from other places and once it reaches the united states community spread was going to send it around it was inevitable however the Trump administration seems to want to focus on 
what we'll call good news. They don't want to put bad news out there. They don't want to spook people. They don't want to scare people, and they don't want to drive the economy. That is something that President Trump looks at intently each and every day. He wanted the U.S. numbers to be very low. There were testing problems that the CDC and Health and Human Services knew about and did not put into action. And some of the things that they brought to the president and brought those concerns to him got shot down. Why? Because the president wanted to put forth good news. And I think the president does take this seriously, absolutely 100%. But the economy cannot be the chief concern here. It has to be the well-being and the public health of the people of the United States of America. The president tweeted at the Fed asking them to cut interest rates because he thought that that would slow the bleeding of the economy. We have entered correction territory and we are going down. The stock market plunged again last week and it will probably continue to as we see more cases and more deaths across the United States and the world. What I just told you about Italy, that is going to impact the stock market as well. The stock market is reacting to fear. Investors are worried, and rightly so, because the global economy is going to be impacted by this. We just saw what's going on with Italy. China has obviously had a lot of lockdown as well, and that is such a huge engine of the global economy. This is not going to stop anytime soon. My message to the president Continue to empower your people. They just got funding. An $8.3 billion bill, I believe, was passed earlier this week, signed by President Trump. That funding is going to be critical in the fight against COVID-19. What I would ask the president to do is don't worry about whether it's good news or bad news. You are the president of the United States. You are the president of the entirety of the United States of America. It is your job to tell us what is happening and to make sure that we are aware. We do not want to be left in the dark. We need to know what is happening and what we need to do also in order to protect ourselves and our families. It's on HHS, obviously, to do that. It's on the CDC, obviously, to do that. But they all need to work in concert. Just providing good news is not going to cut it. Just providing good news is just wrong in terms of making sure that the public is healthy by saying that some people fight off the flu by going to work or being, you know, going in public. Yes, that might be true for the flu. But right now, if you have people with coronavirus that are not diagnosed or even that have it and are diagnosed, you can't be sending them out in public. You cannot do that. Don't put people at risk. It is simply too important. Now that we've updated you on coronavirus, I want to bring us to our last story, our feel-good story of the week. This one comes to us from Arkansas. It involves an eight-year-old student named Avi Cox. So Avi Cox wanted to attend the annual daddy-daughter dance with her friends at her school in Arkansas, but Avi's father passed away over the holidays. She assumed that she would not be able to go to the dance. But what ends up happening is the school that she attends has a resource officer named Nick Harvey. He heard that A.V. Cox did not have an escort to the dance, and he sought permission to be her date. This is a really funny quote. He says, I reached out to the mother because the last thing I wanted was to get rejected by a second grader. And then the next day, I formally asked if she'd be my date to the daddy-daughter dance. A.V. Cox apparently was thrilled to accept the invitation, and the duo even made sure 
to coordinate their outfits. They took pictures, they rode in a limo to the school, and they danced the night away with the other elementary school kids and teachers. Nick Harvey said that he hopes to be Avi's escort for all the school dances to come so she never has to miss another dance. Thought that was a beautiful story, one that I hope lifts you up here on this weekend and takes you into the week. Avi Cox and Nick Harvey, what a great story there in Arkansas. I'm Noah Niederhofer again. Jenny Taylor hopefully will be with us again next week. Hope you have a wonderful, wonderful week. This has been Polite Politics. We'll catch you next time.